Hello and welcome to another episode of Surveyor Says. My name is Tim Birch and this week in continuing with our theme of what is surveying, uh, we're going to take even a deeper dive this week and uh, I, it's my pleasure to, uh, to introduce uh, as, as this week's guest, um, Tony's not just somebody that I looked up to uh, through my time in NSPS as, as a past president and uh, a lot of the, several of the roles he filled, but uh, I can, I do consider him a, a, a mentor and a friend. And so uh, today it's, it's, it's Tony Cavell, uh, down in uh, Louisiana. And uh, so Tony, welcome to the podcast. I said, so why don't you give us a little introduction about who you are, what uh, what's your what's your current employment, and and uh, kind of what you've got your fingers in at this point in your career? Oh, thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you for the complimentary introduction. I uh, uh, always have to take a breath when I hear something like that. Uh, I'm native Louisiana. I'm born in Lafayette, which is about an hour's drive from where I am now in Baton Rouge. I work at the Louisiana State University. Uh, our group is called the Center for Geoinformatics. Uh, I usually make a joke about the fact that since I'm working at a university, the more syllables you have, the better your dignity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, the center uh, was begun uh, back in 2001 uh, by uh, the late Dr. Roy Daca. Uh, those who uh, deal in geology, know him well. He was a, a renowned geologist. And uh, our meeting, in, in a sense, was unintentional, uh, unanticipated, uh, in that his idea was to study the geology of Louisiana, uh, which uh, it would take usually somebody with a high stature in geology to dare to do that, because as he told me, you always tell your uh, your PhD students to study something else. Don't, don't go down to Louisiana, it's too complex. So uh, his idea was to set up permanent GPS stations and just kind of watch a move uh, over decades to uh, try to understand better the, uh, uh, the tectonics and subsidence and things that go on. Uh, I had, at that time was an officer at, uh, in the Louisiana Society, LSPS, and uh, I was also uh, recently uh, uh, had recently been uh, active uh, as a as a GPS dealer or survey dealer, and uh, I was trying to entice him to allow us to take some of the real time data out of the back of those machines while he was interested in the long term stuff and maybe attach radios and uh, set up basically base stations that the uh, surveyor uh, community could really take advantage of. Uh, in his own words, he, uh, he, he thought I was just trying to, to sell him something. He wasn't sure what the heck was going on. <laughs> and uh, at every convention and every opportunity, I pestered him about this. Uh, and about uh, three years, four years later, 2004, I got a call asking if I wanted to come to work at the Louisiana Spatial Reference Center, which is, uh, I should have introduced that term. The C4G uh, Center for Geoinformatics is the Louisiana Spatial Reference Center, uh, which is uh, an appointment from 
NGS uh, for the things they do. Anyhow, the uh, he wanted me to come to work uh, for C4G, and we began in earnest uh, setting up core stations. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, well, it, almost in, instantly, but very, uh, we started uh, trying to get uh, proposals from the various manufacturers and, and software writers for setting up a, a network uh, for the cores for, for real-time purposes. And uh, we got uh, three or four proposals, the ones that I expected to, uh, to come in low and be attractive came in high and the ones I expected to be high came in low. And so we operate uh, presently a, uh, a Tremble Pivot platform is what it's named today. Uh, we have over 130 uh, core stations in our network. Uh, 70 some odd are in state, inside the state boundaries. We also cooperate with uh, states along the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we, uh, about five years ago, we were working on a grant to co-locate for, co for NOAA uh, core stations with uh, coastal tide gauges. Uh, that has been reduced in the recent uh, expectations. And candidly, I expect that if they continue the grant, we will be going back to doing that more uh, aggressively. But in any case, uh, of, uh, so we formed a consortium of the five states. So we have stations now from the tip of Texas, southern tip of Texas, to the east coast of uh, of Florida, and uh, we don't own all of those stations because it's almost true to say that the stations in each state belong to some agents there. Sure. But uh, we've developed uh, probably the most robust uh, computer uh, networking system uh, that any other cores operator that I know of does. It's got uh, the network of, uh, capabilities on campus didn't meet our needs as good as they are. The, uh, so we've got, uh, conveniently in Baton Rouge, we've got a hardened, uh, I don't know if you call them a service provider or what, but a hardened site for access to the internet. They've got three or four trunk connections and nice. uh, four or five redundant power supplies, including uh, diesel generators that work underwater in the basement, things like that. Uh, we rent basically rack space <laughs> and some of the coldest air conditioning you've ever felt. The, uh, <laughs> but this enables us to have uh, four physical servers in their, uh, uh, in their facility running simultaneously and with now I'm going to get start talking over my head, but they uh, they got uh, special load balancing applications that uh, determine uh, which of the servers uh, is working harder than the other, so that if you log on to the the same address, you'll get the best service from one or the other. But it also permits uh, one of our guys to go over there and actually take one of the servers out of the rack physically, do things to it when they put it, but the users will never see it. Uh, never see anything happen. It's almost like a cloud. Sure. And, uh, sure. And we've been recording data uh, 
we've been recording data since 2001 or two, but uh, because of format changes and the like, some of it's very hard for us to get to since about 2005 or six, but uh, we've got several, I, don't know, I can't keep up with it, but Randy would tell me how many terabytes of data there is. And uh, of those, the, uh, what is it, 20, about 30, 32 stations, I believe, are, are, are used by NGS as national cores inside the state. So uh, we've got uh, a much higher percentage of our network that is uh, national cores that than what NGS suggests you use to keep yourself aligned. And uh, we think we keep the, uh, well, we, we get excited if one of the stations looks like it's out of alignment uh, by more than a few millimeters, <laughs> literally a few millimeters starts to get our attention. And uh, uh, with fingers crossed and very, with a great deal of thanks, the uh, some of our subscribers uh, have as many as 10 or a dozen licenses. And uh, our licenses are not the least expensive. Uh, and uh, that by itself was also a bit of foresight. Um, Back in the day, there were many station, many uh, networks that were set up, and they were often by a government agency, DOT or something. And there was the thought that it's uh, this is government information; there should be no charge for it. But as a result, they didn't take into account they were they were comparing it to copies off of a copy machine, and uh, as a result, there was no uh, funding to. Uh, keep their equipment up to date. And several, if not most of those uh, operations are defunct now. The, uh, uh, we're, we've been quite fortunate that uh, our subscribers have enabled us to keep the latest of the uh, cutting edge equipment uh, and software working for them, as well as uh, uh, supporting our research, the uh, I could keep on talking, but the, no, the okay. research, the research part is much more uh, in the academic ge ge uh, geodetic realm. Uh, one thing that the geodesists, those people who call themselves geodesists, do is crunch lots of numbers. They're fantastic mathematicians, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school that if I say that most of them are not data collectors. They are right. They use data that's been collected and come up with some really great uh, results. Uh, our little group, and we are little, uh, I think there's nine of us, uh, three of us work about getting things measured in the field. And that includes me who does mostly nowadays pointing which place to go. The, uh, but we acquired uh, uh, a state-of-the-art absolute gravity meter, which is uh, kind of mind-blowing. Uh, you could spend an hour talking about it by itself. But, oh, yes. Uh, the unit of gravity, for those who are not aware, is, call is, is, is called Galileo. Uh, or we, call it, we just shorten it to gals. But uh, Galileo, coincidentally, was the first guy to accurately measure the acceleration 
due to gravity, uh, which requires fantastic timekeeping and, uh, and the like and good measurements. And I like to celebrate that kind of innovation because I think that's the same sort of innovation that goes into surveying is how do you slow the ball down? That you, mm-hmm. if you, if you drop the ball, you got to find a way to slow it down good enough that you can time where it's where its progress is. Well, he did that, but instead of letting it fall straight, he put it on an inclined plane, and he marked the spaces on the plane. Uh, but he still didn't have WWV or anybody to give him really good timekeeping. Uh, but this is where the marriage of uh, of different fields comes in. And something that in our specialization today kind of is a danger that we lose is he was a musician as well, as were most scientists. And (laughs) they didn't call themselves scientists. They called themselves natural philosophers. And he was a good musician. He he played in his head a a rapid piece or hum it to himself. And he knew what bar he was on or what note he was on when the ball got to here and here and here. And so he was able to uh, time the fall, the acceleration of the ball down uh, down this ramp, and very successfully. The uh, today uh, we have the, a tube, highly evacuated tube with uh, uh, kept at a very high uh, vacuum. We never turn the vacuum off, even when it's in the truck. The, uh, when it's at such a low uh, low pressure that. Uh, those of you who are old enough to remember what a vacuum tube and a radio was, uh, mm-hmm. basically it's a, it's a fancy kind of vacuum tube that uh, as, as molecules bounce around, uh, they hit one of the plates of the uh, vacuum tube and stick to it and get basically go out the electric wire. Uh, uh, that's, the, that's how low the vacuum is. So that we get rid of the vacuum so there's nothing, no drag when you drop something right right and the uh, uh the thing that is dropped is a retro reflector just like you'd use with your total station and there's two of them one sits at the bottom and one is in that and we have a laser that splits and as as the the one at the top drops the result the laser beams are brought back together and go to make an interference pattern and so as it drops, they either interfere positively and get brighter or they interfere constructively and get dim. The computer uh, counts the time in between each of those shifts. That's about a wavelength of red light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so there's an atomic clock sitting over here as our timepiece. And it, it all works out so that uh, we get the absolute gravity. We can figure out how strong is gravity pulling here. And what that does, if we know the ellipsoid height, we know where it is on the, uh, what its latitude is in particular, the, this is the information that goes into making a geoid model. Because uh, the geoid, when the gravity is strong, the geoid's higher, zero on the geoid is higher. And if it's weak, you have to get down closer to the center of Earth to get the same strength of gravity. Right. And so, uh, in our area, you've got uh, we'll call, you know got soil, but over here you've got a salt dome. Uh, well, salt isn't as dense as most soils, and so uh, 
the gravity isn't as strong. In fact, uh, that's one of the way, one of the older ways of trying to find where you want to drill an oil well. It's around a salt dome. Uh, later, since NGS was really happy to see that we had such stuff. Uh, by the way, our subscriptions are the things that help pay for this, and that's why I'm proud of it. Sure. They, uh, we we purchased serial number one of a a new digital celestial camera. And why would you get that? Well, what it does is it tells you the deflection of the vertical. Uh, if you live near uh, mountainous areas, uh, you've probably been seen, told in textbooks and whatnot that your plumb bob doesn't really point to the center of the earth. It's attracted a little bit more by all this massive right. stuff over on the side. Right. And uh, so there's a the, the Zenith, if you take that nice, perfect ellipsoid that we like to play pretend, uh, the, is vertical from the ellipsoid. That's the zenith, but your plumb bob is tilted from the zenith by some small amount. Usually in in, in the uh, in my our area, usually in the in, in the magnitude of about an arc second. I'm sure as you move around to places with high density changes, it, it's it's bigger numbers. And uh, so those things in combination, we're trying to build a good uh, uh, geoid for Louisiana and aid NGS in building the uh, improving the geoid model. Exactly. Okay. Well, you've, you've thrown out all of these, 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 these components of these pieces. And so uh, in putting this all together, and this is part of one reason I wanted to have to sit down and have this conversation with you today is uh, you know, you know, because we're this series is what is surveying. Well, part of surveying and what you've laid out is geodesy, and there's so much that goes into the geodesy we know now, and all the technology you just rattled off. Absolutely, you know, I in, we go back, you know, even 25, 30 years ago, and we didn't have a lot of this technology. We knew some of these things, but obviously we didn't have GPS to the, to the effect we, we have now in GNSS. Um, so from, I guess, from, uh, from your perspective, what is geodesy? I mean, we, it's measurement, it's, it's, it's create, it's, it's measurement of the earth, what, what have you, but you putting all these things together from your your higher level perspective, what is geodesy? I'm looking on my desk because I thought I might have had the right, the really cool definition. NGS has it, <laughs> uh, has it very succinctly, actually, and I'm sure I'll get it slightly wrong, but it is the science of measuring the uh, size, shape, and uh, uh, of the Earth, its rotation and its uh, physical properties such as its gravity field. Uh, some would add in magnetic field. Uh, I find the way it's usually described, we all have short memories. Uh, I think people are, con are comfortable with memory that goes back twice as far as how old they are. You know, a three-year-old person is maybe can picture something happening six years ago. Sure, a teenager might be able to go back 20 years. Right. But uh, further than that, it's kind of hard to uh, encapsulate in your, in your brain. Uh, I contend that 
geodesy was surveying until it separated. That uh, if you look at even in North America, you got the Mason-Dixon line. Who are Mason and Dixon? Mason and Dixon were a couple of mathematicians. Right. Who understood astronomy. Uh, uh, Ellicott and Benjamin Banneker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they laid out well, the, the Ellicott line. I think there's several lines that are called Ellicott, but the Ellicott line to me is the north boundary of Florida, the top of the boot for Louisiana. Uh, and just to get, and Banneker was famous, I mean, not famous, he, he was fabulous. And uh, his ability to make uh, uh, portable astronomic instruments, but mostly portable clocks, which in that day meant that you could disassemble it, put it on the truck, on the backboard, on the buckboard. Mm-hmm. And when you got where you were going, you put it back together again, and it still worked. So it was sure. portable. The... Uh, uh, they made their measurements using astronomy. How did he know where he was on the earth uh, would, uh, would determine by latitude and longitude that he got from the stars. But you couldn't do it, especially longitude, you couldn't do it without an excellent clock. And because longitude is nothing but how, how far around the earth have you come from some starting point? And it was Paris or it was Greenwich, England or it was Washington, D.C., depending on mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, uh, which era you were working in. Today, it's almost universally Greenwich, England. But uh, we go back to the, the guy I was talking about earlier when he played around with telescopes, discovered the moons of Jupiter. The moons of Jupiter, and for anybody who's got a surveying quality telescope, should find out where Jupiter is in the sky and look at it sometime. If you've got any appreciation for these things, it's breathtaking to see these five uh, points of light. I say five. It varies at times. But they've got the planets. I mean, the the moons of Jupiter line up in in a perfect line across the uh, planet. And then they change. They change from day to day. And that was almost heretical in, at his t- in, in those days that the celestial bodies were, were, were able to, to morph. And, but what came of that was by building an ephemeris around those uh, moons when they would uh, disappear and reappear, uh, people like Banneker could help Ellicott uh, tell the time, and so when he would observe, he would observe. He would set his pendulum clock going and set the clock according to the uh, those observations. He could then know uh, when certain stars would uh, pass overhead. He could look in the ephemeris from Paris and say, "Oh, it's been mm-hmm. this long since it, that star went overhead in Paris." Uh, divide that time by twenty-four, and this is how far around the world I am. That's my longitude. Uh, and, and as I understand, there was a, a monument that he built in the, uh, oh, heck, the name's going to excuse me, uh, going to escape me, and I, it's going to bother me. The name of one of the Indian tribes, Natchez. It was a, a, uh, a monument he built uh, near where the Natchez uh, community was okay. that when checked, 
in the early 90s by GPS observation uh, and uh, different datum transformations applied, uh, was found to be an error by about 22 feet. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, what these guys, uh, they, they knew what they were doing. The, I think the biggest, some of the biggest disconnects uh, happen for practical reasons. It, the disconnect was never complete. I mean, my grandfather's survey uh, uh, text that he, uh, that I got from him, uh, warned you about uh, when making precise uh, leveling observations that at a certain distance, uh, you had to account for the curvature of the earth and refraction too. And I've used that ever since I be first became a surveyor to not let my uh, survey, my leveling crews take a shot over 250 feet uh, mm -hmm. because at that, you got to round up to a thousandth of a foot and we're going to stay away from all the rounding ups and just keep it. <laughs> yeah. keep it. And it, hey, I think I avoided some busts that way. Uh, exactly. I think that as we got into the 20th century, uh, the uh, we had experienced the well. Let me back up a hair. With the public land survey got started, most people don't realize that was a geodetic survey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're the, exactly right. <laughs> the meridians were were uh, were due north, and the parallels were. Uh, due east and west, which means that they curved because that they were on a line of latitude if they're due east and west. Uh, that convergence is also why you have to squeeze all the excess uh, uh, or, 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 or missing in all the errors, if you will, into that uh, northwest uh, section on a perfectly, you know, perfectly laid out. Exactly. And for, and for those in the, uh, the meets and bounds states just ignore all that. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. The, uh, uh, but um, Mason and Dixon were over there and they didn't ignore it. The, no, uh, no, they uh, did not. But as we got into the, the, the wars uh, from the mid 1800s to the mid 1900s, uh, practical applications uh, were of more limited distance. Uh, the other thing that was used a lot for, the, for in, up to the 20s, or through, uh, particularly to the 20s, but until we came up with uh, satellite navigation, is triangulation. Well, triangulation goes all the way back to the invention of cannons. Mm -hmm. Because if you were going to lay siege to somebody's castle, first of all, cannonballs and cannons and, and gunpowder were heavy, and you didn't want to carry too much of it too far. And you made friends with the king before you were going to invade him, so you had somebody figure out where the, uh, <laughs> you know, how far apart the, the steeple of the church was from the, the tower and things, so that you could... Uh, just like as if you're using a plane table in a plane table survey, 
you could figure out uh, very quickly uh, by scaling on a little map you got in front of you where to aim your cannons. Uh, by the uh, 1920s, uh, that was the basis for triangulation arcs. That was the basis for our national uh, North American datum of, of that of those years. <coughs> in well into the second half of the 20th century, that was our control in Louisiana mm -hmm. in, in the United States. The uh, the other disconnecting factor, and I think it's really significant in the PLS world is the effect of post-World War II. With World War II, uh, they were trying to figure out how to keep millions of guys coming back into the labor force from causing an uh, economic disruption. So uh, we had the GI Bill and we tried to send half of the guys to school. Uh, we wanted to let the other half go into construction work. So we made the buy houses inexpensively, and all that worked pretty well. Uh, for the surveyor at that time, they learned, especially the, the, the young surveyor at that time, learned that the, the way to operate a business was to hang out your shingle and wait for the bank to call because everybody was going to be needing, there was lots of work and you just, they would call you. And uh, as you know, in our her, it was trying to wrest people out of that uh, uh, business model. Right. But, uh, how did that affect the disconnect between geodesy and surveying? Is I think for a whole generation and maybe two of surveyors, the uh, extent of your survey, the datum, if you will, for your survey, was uh, in urban surveying it was a city block. It was flat. Right. And everything became plain survey. Uh, even uh, departments of transportation uh, would do their projects by plain surveys uh, with some cor with correction factors. And so uh, geodesy was for the guys that wanted to play in that stuff and real surveyors uh, uh, did plain geometry. And uh, then uh, the, uh, we started throwing satellites up in the air in 57, and uh, uh, Sputnik went around the world uh, beeping, and uh, I usually tell a story that, uh, facetious story, that, uh, you know, some guys in the ivory tower said, oh, wow, look, the Doppler shift really works, and because uh, it has a high pitch and a low pitch, and, you know, if we know where... Uh, its orbit is, we can tell from that switchover uh, when it's closest to us. And if we wait around till it makes a few passes, we could figure out where we are triangulating from those right. passes. And so the Navy developed a, a system that got named the transit or the Doppler system of satellites. And they, uh, is, they formed uh, with something like a week's worth of observation uh, one could get down to the meter and submeter uh, level, and with a lot of math, you could make adjustments that look better than that. Uh, the transit system, the Doppler system, was one of the main controls for the NAD83 uh, uh, system that we're using today. Uh, it's since been 
adjusted and improved and improved, but uh, it's still N883. And, and of course, we've uh, uh, the problem with the Doppler system for the, the Navy. Uh, first of all, it was a godsend because you can be anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and figure out where you are. But you, it might take uh, 20, uh, 10, 10 minutes minimum, and that's lucky, but uh, 10 minutes to most of an hour to get a position that's as accurate as an inertial guidance system would need, which is what the atomic submarines used. They could stay down forever, except that if, if they, since they were running on inertial guidance, which cons- has to have some error in it, that air is going to grow over time. You don't want to go running into one of these uh, uh, mountains underneath the underneath the sea. Mm-hmm. And the submarine's first job is, as most people aren't don't think about it, their first job is to hide. It's just to be. Oh yeah. So uh, the, the uh, coming up and trying to take manual uh, store shots with a tra- with a. a, a, a Hex sextant uh, is kind of impractical, and the uh, but the idea of having any satellites tell you where you are within an hour, man, that's pretty good. Uh, except that as more satellites get up, it was really easy to see submarines when they came up to the surface to get this stuff. So uh, they they needed another system, and it was uh, uh, needed to be instantaneous, uh, accurate, all that good stuff. And so uh, the GPS or NAVSTAR was invented and uh, so there's more satellites it was i think at most like seven or nine transit mm-hmm. satellites uh, they limited the number of gps satellites at 32 simply because that's what the computers could handle at the time and uh, they're they were put up in very high orbits uh, for a couple of reasons one was the transits were only 600 miles high so as they would come over the earth i mean over a uh, terrain they would be attracted and speed up a little bit but as they got over the ocean they'd slow down a little bit and so their orbits weren't pretty the uh, gps satellites are far enough out for a couple of reasons one the earth can be treated like a point source mm-hmm. for gravity as well as at that distance uh, an observer can see more satellites you don't have to wait for the next, like the transit, you had to wait for a satellite to come by and wait for another one to come by. So uh, now with a workable uh, GPS system, the satellites could come up uh, to the surface. And as soon as they got a fix, they got a fix. And so they could go back down. And to get a fix, you needed four satellites. And poof, they, they could go back and do their job. And so that's why we had, why we got the GPS now. Uh, granted, it was also designed to be very useful for the other military forces and the like. Uh, and uh, so that started, uh, at least with some, or some thinkers, started thinking, first of all, like, uh, wow, we could use this. I'm jumping way past this Challenger accident and all that stuff. Right. But by, uh, which enabled the, one of the big benefits, if we can call it that, one of the uh, offshoots that benefited surveying out of the Challenger accident was a little bit of a uh, hiatus where the ivory tower guys started to figure out that uh, you could get what we today would call static observations with GPS 
and get differences in positions down to sub-centimeter uh, over great distances. And uh, by the way, it was the same algorithm that is used today for the base of all geodesy that I know about, uh, the VLBI, which is uh, these uh, uh, radio telescopes similar to what you might've seen if you watched the movie ET. Uh, uh, you can, now this blows my mind even today when I think about it, but a, uh, such a, a telescope, VLBI telescope on either end of continental United States, California to Washington, 4,000 miles more or less. Uh, you can resolve, they're looking at the, uh, at that time they called them pulsars. Today they recognize them as black holes uh, that are rotating. They look at those signals uh, in the same way that we look at a GPS station, a GPS uh, satellite. And that distance, 4,000, they can resolve the XYZ, the delta XYZ uh, to a centimeter over 4,000 miles. Well, that, you can see why that makes a very good control for, for most of the geodesy in the world. That method is what we use now to do static GPS uh, carrier surveying. And uh, in the 90s, the next important thing uh, happened probably was the, uh, mainly out of Ohio State University, the uh, previously classified work on, on geoid models was finally made public. And geoid modeling, as I hinted at earlier, is really important because GPS can't tell you your elevation. Mm -hmm. uh, GPS can tell you your XYZ uh, from the center of the earth, we usually use what I call uh, our own 3D graph paper, an ellipsoid, to plot that it's got a uh, latitude and longitude here. For height, because it's an ellipsoid, measuring from the center of the earth doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's not perpendicular to where you're standing unless you're at the equator of the pole. So mm -hmm. uh, the up and down is measured normal to the ellipsoid wherever the heck you are and that's expected at the flexion of the vertical the uh, uh so that's what we'll call ellipsoid height is your height above negative height below that model that model graph paper <coughs> in south louisiana uh if we have an elevation that's uh uh oh less than 75 feet, 24, 25 meters, it's, a, it's got a negative, anything less than that's got a negative ellipsoid height. So you got to deal with negatives. If, you, if you're on the ocean, as you get close to the shore, uh, you've got to be very aware uh, that uh, the ellipsoid model's over your head. Mm -hmm. And most of us are thinking of sea level as the reference, but that's the geoid. That's not the ellipsoid. In any case, the uh, uh, surveying became uh, uh, very interested in the possibility. It wasn't then uh, a necessity. The possibility of getting elevations. Today, we would say orthometric heights. But the elevations, uh, using these really cool GPS equipment and geoid, they're uh, 
96, I think was the first practical one for most surveyors, or it was a 93, I believe. Uh, they were pretty rough by today's standards. But uh, in fact, the way we used them back then was uh, we would trust the shape, but we wouldn't trust the absolute value that they gave us. So we would get several points and one of which or two of which we had a benchmark that we did trust. And we would take the shape or tilt that the geoid model had and just raise it or lower it to the, to the uh, correct height. And it did well in, in limited areas, as long as you didn't try to spread out too far. And as the geoid models, I mean, the current geoid models, despite my pitching about it on, uh, for Louisiana, is, uh, is amazing. And the, the reason for our gripe is uh, as far back as the 50s, when Hale Boggs was one of our representatives, uh, he even was getting U.S. and G.S. to come out every five years or so to tell him what was going on. His, his uh, constituents were talking about things sinking and more water. And uh, the Louisiana, I like to say it this way sometimes when I'm explaining it, uh, we, we just, we're just 2% of the states. <laughs> and, uh, as such, uh, um, the statistics for the whole continent, for the whole continental United States can look pretty good and ours can still not be so great. And uh, that's been the case. And it's one of the thrusts kind of circling back to why C4G exists. It's one of the thrusts uh, we would like to, uh, we would be fulfilling part of our mission if we get an accurate geoid model for our areas. And uh, next question. <laughs> well, I, and I tell you what, and I've heard, I've, I, I personally have heard you talk about this before, you know, how, how things kind of, like you said, it, it surveying kind of diverged from its role in geodesy and you know, how it was really married with, uh, with astronomy and a few things back in the day. And then it, it, it kind of peeled off its own way, like you said, with development, with construction, with all these things. Now we fast forward to the late 80s. We get really the, the, the introduction of commercial GPS, uh, the receivers that are actually affordable uh, for, you know, reasonably affordable for the, the, the surveying profession. And, you know, as we move for, you know, closer through the 90s into RTK and a few things, we're getting this merging back with, with the geodesy side, but now we've got a whole bunch of practitioners, and I, I'll be, I'll be honest with you because I was that I was this way for the longest time. It, it, it took more education on my part. We've got a lot of practitioners that don't that are using using an expertise they don't understand, and there's a lot of a lot of a lot of um, uh, experience and knowledge that needs to be gained to really know other than just going out there. As you know, some as a lot of educators will say, with your black box technology and punching a button and going, "Yep, GPS tells me I'm here and vertical's good and all this stuff," um, it's, it's it is kind of blind faith into the equipment. But um, and I guess that's part, of, really part of what the, the conversation is here with with where geodesy is coming back into the surveying world now and the work you're doing that is really it's really kind of showing the way of how much more the practitioner needs to know to really to have a handle on what we're doing and putting all these things together that 
yeah, they can go stay in their own little lot surveys in their own lot and blocks. But anytime you're getting into bigger and bigger things and incorporating this technology, there really is a lot more to know about it that, you know, and really it lies within that background and that foundation you've just established here. Well, I, I agree. Um, and I think there are a lot of uh, people or a lot of fields uh, to, to, to blame and bless along, uh, in that regard. Uh, taking perhaps prominence as uh, manufacturers of the high-tech stuff we use. Uh, they have done a fantastic job of coming up with some really cool toys. Uh, I've tried to play with most of them. The, uh, the ones I'm familiar with, and it's probably a lower percentage today because there are more manufacturers, uh, did, uh, did, they made a very good effort, I think, to make available the knowledge of what's happening underneath the hood. Uh, uh, but big organizations often develop silos that don't talk to each other. And if you're in the sales silo, uh, what you say may sound a little different than what the guy gets going to a class to learn what doesn't work. The salesman's gonna tell you what does work. Um, so uh, the, the guy who has a, uh, uh, let's just make a, a, a small survey operation as a model. Uh, and so when he's busy, he's very, very busy. Uh, and so he hands the guy, an, a fairly new fellow who's a good man, and uh, says, uh, go out, and these are the buttons you got to push. And if the red screen comes up, call me, or something of that effect. If this happens, and it will several times, uh, pretty soon the guy doesn't have to tell him what buttons to push and what red screens to look out for. But the... Uh, the tool has become a black box, as you call it. Uh, it, it. My input's a button and whatever the file somebody gave it from the office and the answer is whatever the answer is. I don't have any authority, meaning in its literal sense, ability to write some comment and to what's going on. Uh, I, don't, I, don't have, uh, I don't have any authorship, is probably the better term, to, uh, to come in. Uh, of course, uh, the, from some of that, not always arrogance, but ignorance, the, uh, you get what is now famously been called uh, the pincushion corners, mm -hmm. where uh, the boss told me to put, you know, this, this is where the iron goes. So that's where I put it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's another iron over there, too. I don't know what the heck that one's about. And ignorance is a defense. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you think about it, uh, uh, it's a defense in many things. Uh, uh, some near auto accidents, I didn't see them coming, <laughs> and the like. I didn't know it was loaded, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, the uh, obligation 
is most and always has been most on the person who bears a license to make sure that uh, now I'll keep the sentences short that he understands his tool. Mm-hmm. I would rather him go out with a steel tape uh, and a transit and know how it works than to use GPS and work in ITRF instead of NAD83 and, and build a house on the other guy's lot. Um, or, you know, uh, it just makes sense. Uh, I remember when the EDM first came out, uh, uh, it was magic. And well, actually a little later than that, when everybody was used to having one, uh, mm-hmm. the crews were, uh, this is similar to the GPS question, but the crews were very happy with this EDM thing. I mean, you push the button, said how far something was. Almost, I, I would bet if I asked the 100 people, 99 would get this wrong. Why don't you use a tape to lay out this little 50 foot slab? Oh, I got the, it'll tell me how far it is. Do you realize your tape's more accurate at 50 foot than EDM is? Mm-hmm. Uh, even even a good one? Uh, so when you check, how do you check your corners? What do you mean? For those who don't know what that joke was about, if you laying out a square, a rectangular slab, if you pull the diagonals across the corners, they should be the same. And it's a, a, very, it's a check that... Uh, Everyone, even a carpenter, knows. I mean, everyone should know, and even carpenters know to check it. Uh, I don't think, and here I get into some uh, areas that sometimes are not the most popular. Uh, I don't think the cure for this is trying to teach people how do you what's behind their tools. I don't think you can do that in a school except for each tool. Uh, right. the, uh, and if you try to do it in some kind of a regular uh, curriculum, whatever curriculum, you, you got to realize the uh, uh, glacial uh, progress uh, in which the bureaucracies inside universities work. Uh, you don't easily change a curriculum. Because somebody's printed a catalog, somebody else has started his four years and doesn't want to change. And we've got people paying money for this. And it's just all kinds of uh, uh, interference for for updating. uh, So most most, uh, curriculum tend to be broad and hands-on is usually last year stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The... And that's just the way it is. It's not, you're not going to fix that very well. The, uh, so uh, how to, the, well, I've got my own ideas about how to get that accomplished. I don't think they'll come to fruition, not in my lifetime. And that is uh, another profession that we want people to know how their tools work, uh, uh, no matter how many degrees they have or anything else, is usually our physicians and our surgeons. And they don't really get to work without supervision until they've served a residency proving that they know how all this kind of stuff is works in their hands. And uh, that's what we're missing. I think if you go back in between the teens and the 40s when surveying was becoming a license by uh, government, the 
the guys who were writing the descriptions didn't know what surveyors did. And so you ask around, what does a surveyor do? Well, he tells me where my property lines are. And 90% of the laws and uh, uh, therefore qualification test questions are going to be uh, about things that have to do with measuring a length. Uh, uh, how do I, and, and are covering certain specific laws inside that state. But basically, how do you lay out a, prop, a piece of property is what the test is about. And today, uh, that knowledge, while it is probably sufficient to earn one a license, uh, is not sufficient to protect somebody from the public with the tools we have today. That there's a little bit of a difference. The license is not really supposed to protect the public, but it's, I like to put it when I'm speaking to potential surveyors, the license is a noose. And it's something that can be taken away from you if you misbehave. Yes. And so it's the license is really a license for the state to punish you. Uh, so I'm proud to have a license, but I realize what, what it really is. If, if they take it away and that's my whole livelihood, I'm, 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 I'm in, and that, is, that serves as a government's incentive for you to do good work, uh, which is how it's supposed to work. But, exactly. Uh, the thing I would like to see, if, uh, it's, it's going to be universal if it isn't already, that you need four-year degree. Uh, just to ask the Board of Registration to give you permission to apply. Uh, the uh, post that, an ideal situation would be that the 30 hours that most states require uh, would go toward a master's degree. Why not? Yeah. Whether it does or not is not the crucial part. Once one has given a license, right now you uh, either, depending, it varies from state to state. Most states have a, a surveyor training, surveyor intern position where somebody has proven that they've, uh, they know what the old technology does. <laughs> and the, uh, uh, with a little more experience usually, as it's called, uh, they can get a license. That experience should be similar to a residency for a medical profession, for instance, where you work under a not any professional as it is now, but under a recognized professional who's a mentor, recognized. Mentor. Right. And uh, no, yeah. when the mentoring professional signs off that this guy, the, this guy is safe to let him loose on the public, uh, you then, uh, you've, you've got your PLS with an asterisk by it, the asterisk gets taken off and you can open, you can practice on your own. Uh, that model, I think, worked. a mentor probably gets some very talented people to work for him for less than they would demand if they were fully licensed. And the mentor and the, uh, the protégés get the experience and supervision they need to make sure that they don't screw up things for people. The, uh, as far as the new technology and geodesy, that's a, that, that gets into politics. Uh, I may be doing, maybe I like, and you know, I want to retire and only do simple boundary surveys. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, a, you know, somebody who's got a, a concierge medical practice, you know, he, he treats bunions and that's it. The, uh, uh, I can work in that 
plane survey on, on a datum that's no bigger than a city block all day long. But wait a minute, look at these regulations. Somebody went to the uh, uh, went to the textbook and found out there's such a thing as state plane coordinates and uh, <laughs> and, and precisional uh, accuracy. And so I can't do that. Uh, without learning what these other, or I can, but probably get in jeopardy or what happens to the people who actually know how this stuff works oftentimes is I do it right and the guy sitting behind the counter doesn't know what right is and so he challenges your, your results. So uh, that's, the other, that's the other place where there's a disconnect. Uh, oh, sure. Exactly. Well, one thing I do, I do want to ask you about, and this is something obviously you and I have talked about on and off, and I think this is another another real good reason I wanted to have this conversation today, is the concept that we've talked about over the years about a geodetic surveyor and what that truly entails versus, I'm going to say, your common everyday practitioner. I mean, it's, and, and, and I guess what, we're, what I'm trying to allude to is what did, what do you think it goes into if for for someone for a a a, a land a, a land surveyor I keep got to quit saying land surveyor a surveyor to be considered a geodetic surveyor and say we come up with a certification of some sort that uh, deems one at this higher level what would you say that 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 what does that entail what what kind of experience what kind of knowledge base what would that person be certified really to do and what would what would be their main their main tasks in being a geodetic surveyor i'm glad you asked <laughs> the uh there's two uh two answers and uh actually there's one answer to the question you way you asked it and another one for the way i wish you had asked it okay. the, uh, well, well straighten uh, me out then tony no, straighten a geodetic me out. <laughs> surveyor is what i do right now I go out and measure things with the geodesy in mind, not a boundary, not a dam, not a, you know, uh, not a flood elevation. Uh, I am trying to improve geodesy. And that's what I'm doing here. Uh, it doesn't require license. I doubt it ever will. Certificates will probably don't mean anything. The guys that I give the data to will decide if it's worth crap or not. That's a geodetic surveyor. Uh, the guys who work with me or follow my supervision are geodetic surveyors, though, though you might, if you split hairs, you'd call them a technician instead, but they, they're good. So you, let's see, it was back in 2016, I was uh, uh, honored to be president of NSPS. And uh, the reason you know that this was a conversation we've had is having a, a geodetic certificate was uh, a very uh, was one of my uh, goals, which didn't hasn't yet happened. Yes, and hasn't yet happened. The uh, uh, but I'm fortunate right now. I am the president of the AAGS, American Society uh, for Geodetic Surveying, uh, not of geodetic surveyors. It's for geodetic surveying. The uh, when at NSPS and AAGS back in 2016, we're talking about this, uh, the model I had in mind <laughs> was very similar to the NSPS's hydrographic 
uh, model or to the certified uh, uh, technician uh, CST program. Uh, I really like the CST program model because of its tiers. Uh, and it seems simpler to me to uh, get off the ground than it is proven to be for the geodetic surveyor certificate. No, I got it. The geodetic certificate, surveyor's geodetic certificate. The uh, I, I I view things like these certificates as uh, I like the medical profession as a uh, as a model because it's like uh, I've got an MD uh, and I've got a specialty. I'm board certified orthopedist. I'm board certified ENT or whatever. The uh, this is I'm. I'm a, yeah, I'm a licensed surveyor. This is a benefit I would see for having a certificate is I'm a surveyor and I have been certified in geodesy. I've been certified in hydrography or whatever. The, uh, and I thought it would be fairly quick. You guys come up speaking as NSPS to AAGS, come up with a bunch of questions that you think would qualify somebody. And we're used to, NSPS is used to administering these things and we split the fees and everybody's happy about it. And the guy gets a certificate that uh, means something because your test is quality. Uh, I didn't realize it then, but have realized it shortly thereafter that AGS reinterpreted it to mean an educational activity. Uh, I understand it very well now since uh, 90% of our members are either in PhDs in teaching geodesy or something else like it in school, or they are PhDs working for NGS. And the rest are a few of us. The, it's natural if they think of a certificate, it's a certificate from a course they've taught and you've successfully proven that you absorb the material. Uh, developing a course is no trivial matter. Uh, COVID uh, lockdowns and the like actually assisted because we've been making progress just so I can, uh, that's the, the spoiler alert, we're making progress. Yeah. The, uh, one of our uh, act, very active members uh, was required who teaches the geodesy at his university has, uh, was required by his university at the time to make uh, all of his uh, all of his courses remote accessible, and so we now have the fundamentals of a course just laying there to be used. We've got permission from his university uh, to use it uh, for this purpose. Uh, the test is where we are now. I would like, and I'm I'm trying to use what influence I have to push it this way that you'd have uh, two tiers maybe somebody can come up with more but two tiers uh, one uh, would be a uh, geodetic certificate of competency basic and comp another one of competency advanced or something you know something like that uh, we don't have the intern and professional <laughs> titles to stick on them. The, uh, uh, I like the tier approach. I also advocate, and I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm speaking out of school since we haven't made these decisions yet. These are mm -hmm. uh, ideas oh, that yeah. I, I propose. 
uh, I don't think anybody on committees will be upset. I think uh, we should probably have a test and invite people to pay a fee and take tests. If you pass, good for you. And if you don't, by the way, we've got a course over here you can take to help you prepare for it. Or, of course, if you want to take the course first, that's still there, and have two courses and two uh, tests, something like that. I can't give you a timeline because, uh, uh, as you are more from as familiar as I am, uh, that organizations like uh, of people who actually make their living doing something else yeah. <laughs> uh, don't don't revolve overnight. Uh, but I, uh, I think we're, uh, we're making a lot of progress. Uh, uh, I think with the breakup that we talked about earlier, uh, of, uh, we may not have talked much about it, but ACSM uh, was dissolved, became absorbed by NSPS, and all the MOs kind of went their own way. Some have kept closer connections than others like AAGS and NSPS. Uh, but that... Can, I, I can see now from a different perspective that that orphaned AAGS. When they started out, they were the control, oh, what was it called? Control Survey Division of ACSM. And their name changed over time to AAGS, but uh, they were never a large group. They were, an, it, when it was uh, an integral group within uh, AAG, uh, ACSM, AAGS had a function. I mean, it's kind of like a small organ, your spleen or something in your body. Uh, <laughs> not very big, but it, you know, it works better when it's connected. You know, yes. the, uh, uh, the, the ACSM bulletin was primary from AAGS with others. Uh, the, the, uh, I remember as a young surveyor getting, uh, getting that bulletin and learning almost as much as I did from textbooks. Uh, Hopefully we can revise that soon. The, uh, but in the last few years since that, uh, uh, we, we need to get our navigation back. The guys who are active members of AAGS also are very active and effectual in the work they do. They're either teaching new students, uh, they're running uh, NGS, uh, and, and the like. So they're having good effects, but they're not having it as NGS, uh, AAGS. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think being non-government and non-university itself, uh, AAGS has roles to play, but we need to, uh, we need to find ways to make our connections much more uh, uh, active and viable with uh, our sister organizations. We've become a member of FIG. Uh, we're a member of COGO, uh, which has happened uh, in the last couple of years, both. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, would like, uh, I would like to find ways to uh, widen the uh, liaison between NSPS and AAGS that uh, uh, might uh, that would allow AAGS to have some perks for NSPS members and NSPS find some perks that would be uh, attractive to uh, AAGS members. Right now, there is a stumbling block 
and that is how you become a member in ANSPS and how you become a member of AAGS. Uh, NSPS charges affiliates of, of per capita uh, a capita tax per member and everybody in their group uh, becomes uh, members of NSPS and it's usually spoken and, and the, the per capita tax is quite low. I, mean, I think it's still $40 compared to uh, when I last paid the previous dues, it was $235 to join NSPS. Uh, there are a couple of state affiliates, but I, uh, I don't see that being a, 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 a strong future uh, uh, for uh, AAGS, but the, uh, uh, I would like to find means to uh, reduce well, it, you're, you're, you're the executive of a large organization. If I can increase the number of people, I can cut the dues. And it, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. especially in today's almost paperless world, uh, a new member, if I'm, if I'm operating today, a new member doesn't cost me anything to uh, serve. And so any extra revenue is on top of is 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 clean good money, the and so with that premise, if we can increase our if well, let's make it simple. If you doubled your membership, you could half your dues, and have no no change in a uh, an organization. Uh, I think that is a stumbling block that uh, hinders our uh, cooperation on some things. Uh, some of which would be sharing some member benefits back and forth, but. Uh, uh, I forgot your initial question, but the, <laughs> uh, had to be with the certificate, I guess. Yes. Uh, the, yeah. The, the benefit of that certificate, because you're, I think you're exactly right. I think the benefit of that certificate almost needs to be born out of AAGS and really the work and a lot of the, the philosophies and the, the uh, uh, education and, and, and the knowledge base that, that comes from, from, a lot of what AAGS stands for. Um, and, I, and I guess, let me, let me add this to it. We've got a lot of work going ahead, a lot of work ahead of us in the next several years with the modernization of the NSRS with NGS and the work that you're doing. Um, and I can't imagine the seeing all the, with the, all the work you're doing, um, the, all the subsidence, all, all of the, 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 the title, uh, title work, um, all of the, 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 the tectonics, all that stuff. I mean, we've, we're learning so much more about what our world is doing because of GPS GNSS. Um, so you're, you're collecting all this data and it has nothing to do with boundaries. It has nothing to do with property ownership. It is strictly geodesy. It is strictly what are we working on? And not who owns it, not it's just it's what we're working on. So you know, it, it's tying all of these things together with AAGS and NSPS of a geodetic surveyor and what that would mean to people that are you know to a practitioner, to a surveying practitioner that is engaged in that type of control work. Like you said, the 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 precursor to AAGS was uh, you know was was the control part of it. 
And that's really still what it kind of comes down to. Now, I know we're working to get away from static monuments and, you know, it's more core stations and other things, but we still need to have, um, he still have to have all of the, you know, this stuff that, 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 uh, that, that relates back to properties and ground and things, but I guess the, the importance of this geodetic surveyor and what, where that, where that, where that means. Well, I, uh, uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll correct the phrase one more time, geodetic certificate. Right. <laughs> That's yes. all right. The, uh, yeah, there's a great marriage of things coming together. Uh, I'll tell another story a little bit. The, when NAD 83 came about, and then a few years later, which was in the 80s, late 80s is when we really got it, uh, I, just by accident of where I was, what I where I was working, what I was doing, I realized that the ITRF or WGS eighty four uh, were moving away from NAD eighty three, and how could that be? Because uh, when I was given a, a seminar one time in the latter part of the nineties, I was talking about the uh, uh, GPS and how you figure out where things are. And, at the break, one fellow brought up uh, uh, two textbooks, and they said, this one says that uh, WGS-84 and N883 are the same, and this one says that uh, they're two, two meters apart. Which one's wrong? <laughs> he said which one's right, but you knew what he meant. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was floored for a minute, as you might be sometimes when you're on stage. And I said, well, give it to me. Let me I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. And eventually it dawned on me, I looked at the copyright date. And of course, one was copyrighted in the early 90s and one was in the mid 90s when the, when the movement was recognized. NAD 83 was stuck because it was pinned to the surface. It really became a classical datum uh, because we, the monuments controlled. And uh, by its definition, ITRF and WGS 84 were, they didn't really move the location of the center of earth was just more refined. And it, the first center where they were both all agree, all, all agreeing with each other had five meters of, of error, of, uh, of doubt. And just to give you an idea of the amazing imp improvements, uh, today they claim that they've got a half a centimeter of doubt about where the center mass is. So it turned out that well within that five meter radius, NAD 83 was up here, but the real center was about two, two meters over some further. And uh, so uh, that was, that was always uh, sort of a, uh, a, 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 a shoot, disappointment for me. Why did NGS do this? Why didn't they just let the, let the, the center be defined like it was? And the old explanation was that they didn't think the public would accept coordinates that change. They wanted to, wanted to keep them the same. Mm -hmm. uh, now I'm amazed that Drew Smith and them have done at NGS with the development of their 2022 datums. I mean, it's amazingly complex uh, stuff they're doing. Uh, for one, the simple part is to do what I was suggesting a minute ago which is, uh, okay, 
we're going to be with the inertial system of the earth. We're pinned to the center and all that. Great. Boy, the coordinates are going to change and make everybody scary. Oh, well, wait. Let's figure out how fast the, the continental plates are moving around and see where they're rotating. Maybe if we subtract that, we can make our local datum for that continent not move so much. And, uh, and so you get all these Euler values and uh, all this stuff being touted around. Uh, but it's, it's pretty amazing work. And you can see why uh, in some ways they, they bit off more than they thought in 2022. We'll be lucky to get out in 2024. But uh, uh, we're, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, it's, a, uh, uh, it's a good thing. The biggest difference I guess you could say it's a philosophical difference, is in the past, when we wanted to know the value for a benchmark, we'd get the data sheet, and it was a government document that was printed, and that was where it was. Mm -hmm. That's the value. And uh, it may have been 10 years ago when it was measured, but that's the official value. Uh, the thing with 2022 is going to be the, that's going to be replaced by a coordinate function. And the coordinate function includes whatever history you can, they've been able to get for a monument, and it extrapolates forward. So that uh, if you're looking for the elevation, you won't get the elevation from five years ago. You'll get its predicted elevation for today. Mm -hmm. And you can you can acquire those others if you click the other buttons correctly. But uh, the most probably correct value is what you're going to get. And uh, that, that's hats off to them they're really uh, ambitious uh, and uh, it'll be uh, better than better than most the, again with the uh, certificate and education and how, uh, how why is it important or why should somebody care uh, anybody who really has those questions I know it's too expensive but uh, to do it just on a whim should, explore the uh, certified federal surveyors program. They don't mm -hmm. ever have to want a survey for the Indians or anything like that. Just that program, in my opinion, is uh, as good and better than most uh, uh, educations, uh, survey education, somebody will get in a four-year degree program that specializes in survey. Uh, I would say that honestly. Uh, you will know more about how to figure out boundaries. Uh, and uh, in fact, bringing in the geodesy, first of all, the PLSS we talked about earlier is genetic, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the last continuing education I've had, not that I'm likely to experience any of it, was the uh, court cases and resolutions on uh, landslides, uh, landslides fast and slow and earthquakes. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll probably not uh, uh, ever use those, but it answers one of your questions or addresses something you said that uh, doing what I do may not uh, have to do with boundaries, but it might. But it might. <laughs> it does affect it. It, it, it does, does with, it. It, well, for instance, here's one case in point. Uh, for those who know a little bit about leveling, but haven't uh, racked their brain, uh, when you run a level loop, you're not gonna result, your results are not orthometric heights. 
because uh, of, of a lot of reasons. But right. I love, that's a teaser that somebody can go and try to uh, look up. The uh, uh, definition of the pool elevation for a dam is a case in point. Uh, many times the Corps of Engineers or some authority, uh, power authority or somebody will do a taking uh, for the land that's underneath the, the elevation that would be the pool the design pool height for, for a reservoir. Uh, to get that accurately is gonna require, uh, to, uh, yeah, accurately will require some geodesy. The, uh, uh, and, and the like. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate your time today, Tony. Uh, you, we have jumped into a lot of different, a uh, lot of different aspects of what we were been talking. But I was intending to talk about, and you've covered the, you've covered a lot of ground, and I appreciate that. And uh, you know what? What we should probably do is let's get a little further down the road on the geodetic certification, and uh, we. I'd like to revisit that. Let's get, uh, let's get a little more, few more days under our belts, and uh, a little further down the road because I think what people are going to come to find is that um, just like CST, just like the hydro certification, I mean, even, you know, as far as uh, the sort of, you know, the, your, your photogrammetry certification by ASPRS and, and others. And I think in an NCAA, NCWS is taking this, this, this tact as well. They're looking at modular licensing, even that I think these specializations are going to become more and more important uh, within our, within our profession. And you hit it on the head earlier that our profession probably covers more, 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 more aspects of various tasks and various things than most. So, uh, I think having these, these, these certificates down the line, uh, that help somebody help, will help some help a practitioner establish what they're good in what they're really qualified and what they're knowledgeable in. So uh, I like that you haven't given up the fight on this, on the geodetic, cer uh, geodetic certificate, because I think it's going to be one that's going to be necessary. We're, we're doing the same thing with the, uh, the certified floodplain surveyor. I think that's going to be one. Um, I mean, my personal one that I've, I've kind of, I've really kind of stick to even still is uh, I'll mention just real quickly is land title surveys. Um, every, Every licensed surveyor is can sign a land title survey. There's a lot of surveyors that shouldn't because they do not, they don't go into the depth and breadth of what that survey is uh, looking at as far as title and a lot of the, the 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 requirements that are there. So I think having these certifications just only adds to that expertise level when somebody's looking for that particular surveyor. So <laughs> keep up that fight. Oh, well, I think a couple of other things along that same line. Uh, I have for a long time thought that, granted, this is state law, but uh, that in the states, ought to, uh, the PLS ought to be granted a limited, uh, granted a limited uh, notary public uh, ability. Uh, I, I think the case law has usually been uh, uh, on the side of the surveyor who has good notes, gets a signature and all that because it's in his field book, but uh, it would be nice if it was kind of recognized. And uh, the, uh, but as for the rest, yeah, let's, uh, uh, I, I think the, 
the specialties are going to be uh, the specialties are going to be more recognized. I mean, today, um, when I was a child, I, I, our pediatrician still made house calls. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to find too many that uh, will do that today. So uh, thanks for the time. And I, I hope we make good progress and uh, it'll benefit all the way around. Well, I think it, I think it will. I think it has. No, definitely appreciate taking the time out of your busy day uh, to do this as well, because uh, it, it, it's more knowledge based people. Pe they're, they're, this is part of it that people really just don't ever hear and get a chance to hear it from uh, from the experts that are doing this type of work. Um, honestly, I don't you just like I said, it was it was it was good to sit and share and hear this. I know I got a lot out of it. Let's I, and I, I got to believe that our that our listeners are going to as well. So thank you very much. Oh, you're always welcome. Come by and visit sometime and you can play with the toys. There we go. There we go. Well, that'll wrap us for this week on Surveyor Says. Uh, wherever you wherever you uh, listen, subscribe. And uh, we've got a bunch of great guests still coming up in the next few weeks. So we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.